Hi listeners, I'm Izzy, my pronouns are they and them. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. This is Joella. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the country that we're recording this episode on today and pay our respects to the Turrbal and Yagara peoples and their elders, past, present and emerging by committing to always remembering that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello and welcome podcast listeners. I'm Jean Carruthers. My pronouns are she, her, and this is the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. I am on Turrbal and Yuggera land in Brisbane, Queensland, and would like to pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. I would like to also acknowledge our First Nations listeners and recognise that this land was never ceded, which means it was never signed over to the colonisers of this country. So today I'm here with our wonderful guest for today's episode, Lauren. How are you, Lauren? I'm well, thank you. That's good. It's wonderful to have you here. And this episode is a follow-on from the discussion um, in our previous episode, the Part A episode, that was with one of our other student podcast crew members, Angela. And Angela interviewed Shane Warren about the critical and creative pedagogy he uses in his social work education and practice in the context of homelessness. So I'm going to hand over to you, Lauren, just to have a chat with us about who you are. Like, tell us about you and what brought you to this discussion today. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, It's a pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) My pronouns are she, her. I graduated from QUT last year in the master's qualifying degree. And yes, it was a very transformational experience. And thanks to COVID uh, and the relaxed rules around placements, I was allowed to do my own research project as my final placement last year. And we actually, we knew each other, like we had a class together, didn't Mm, we? So critical reflection. Yes, that's right. Very difficult class. (laughs) It took me a lot to get my head around, but it was transformational. Absolutely. And forever grateful for those very confusing discussions we had. (laughs) I can imagine that some of those discussions would have been confusing. Yeah, for the first time. And now it's like, I can't think any other way. So, yes. Yeah. 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 Once you know it, you can't you switch can't it off. know it. That's right. That's good. Thank you. So, <laughs> so you were going to talk about your research. Yes. Yep. yes. Uh, so I was um, supervised through West End Community House and an issue that was quite close to their heart was around the closure of boarding houses in and around West End and South Brisbane. Okay. And it was very interesting because it wasn't something that I necessarily would have chosen to do myself, mm-hmm. um, but I wanted to support the the organisation and, and give them something that might be useful for them in some way. So 
it turned into, like probably with most research projects, something that you didn't expect it to. Mm -hmm. It was quite a history lesson on the history of Brisbane and how that particular area of Brisbane and the inner inner, uh, northern suburbs of uh, Tenerife and um, New Farm were all very much working class. Yep. The kind of shanties built up uh, around the industries, the warehousing industry, the the ports and everything of Brisbane were all starting from there. So it was very poor, very working class and over time as you know the wealth grew wealthier people moved out into the suburbs and the people who stayed the workers tended to make up it was more migrant community it was yep. very transient community uh, a lot of indigenous families and things like that okay. um, and are you are you a brisbane person not no. born and raised no no, yeah. no. Yeah. so i moved here about 15 years ago yeah. now and west end was the first suburb that i moved to okay. and i just loved it I lived there. I only just moved away a couple of years ago and it was because of the price of the properties. You know, it's just too expensive um, for anything that's somewhat livable. But, yeah, it's still an amazing place uh, even though it's changed so much over the years. And now, obviously, we've got the gentrification that has come back. Um, So this whole project kind of... So can you explain gentrification just for our listeners? Yeah, Yeah. okay. So it's not not a new thing. Uh, Mm. It's been around for a very long time. Yes. And it's generally started from... So when cities are first developed, the uh, industrial centre is the centre of the city. Mm-hmm. And so it's for uh, neighbourhoods, um, people need to be in walking distance to facilities and services and their workplaces. So all of the wealthy people or people that have become wealthy through working would move out to the suburbs and the suburbs would be created. Yeah. Okay. And that would, you know, sprawl, people would sprawl out and then it, then people would want to move back into the city for the trendy city lifestyle and they would buy up the old workers' cottages and renovate. And they have first, second and third waves in Brisbane particularly. So the first wave was when around the 70s, the 60s and 70s, where people who've probably lived in Brisbane their whole lives wanted to move back and preserve some of those old classic um, cottages that we see around the inner city areas. Yeah. And they kept a lot of that character of the place. That yeah. was They were interested in preserving it, but they were still quite wealthy middle-class people moving back into yeah. these poorer neighbourhoods. Mm. So that was pushing the people who are disadvantaged out yeah so they had nowhere to, yeah. to live yeah yeah okay. yeah unintentionally probably mm. a lot like people are oh, attracted to that mm. multicultural and diverse kind of communities it's interesting there's lots to do there's always like a, a very vibrant community there's a lot of artists in those sorts of communities a yeah. lot of students and young families and things like that so yeah wonderful places to be which is probably why they became more and more popular yeah. over the years and more and more wealth is is developed into those into those areas so first wave gentrification and now second wave gentrification is you know what we've seen over the years kind of I don't know if there's a defining point or maybe I just can't remember it but essentially what we're seeing now where it is just absolutely uh, saturated Mm. with high density expensive apartments that are kind of gated off from the rest of the community where someone might drive their BMW from their very high-end luxury apartment through West End to the city to work and then back again. They're not actually a part of the community. community. Well, what came out from talking to people in my research was part of the reason that 
of the appeal of West End was that people were so protective of it Mm -hmm. and it did have such a strong sense of community. Mm -hmm. And even the first wave gentrifiers did kind of protect that, you know, sense of community. Like you've got the West End Community Association, Mm -hmm. um, a few kind of different groups and things like that that came from a lot of privilege and resources that were able to preserve some of the more, yeah, some of the diversity. Yep. Yeah. Mm. So I've kind of strayed off a little bit there around the gentrification thing. That's okay. It's a great conversation. (laughs) Great conversation. Well, it is. It's a kind of pivotal. So back in the 80s when we had Expo 88. Yeah. And I remember that. I actually danced on stage at Expo 88 when I was in my last year of high school. Yeah. So that's how long ago that was. (laughs) (laughs) I love it because whenever I bring this up to people, especially like Brisbane born, you know, that everyone has got an experience of that. They knew of it. It was huge. It put Brisbane on the map. And that was the second wave gentrification right there. Yes. Interesting. So I participated in it. Great. Unknowingly, <laughs> like we all do, yes, we are all right. unknowing participants until yeah. we know. That's right. Uh, so that was that was a very pivotal moment for property prices. Yeah. Uh, and there was a lot of unscrupulous landlords who were upping rents, evicting people, and there was a lot of pushback in the community around that as well. So that really kind of started the community action around trying to pres- preserve people in their homes that mm-hmm. they'd always been in and also arguing for the fact of why we need social housing, why we need regulation around the level of investment that was going into property development there. And the research was interesting because while I was talking to a lot of people who were young activists or young politicians or young workers in the 80s, are all still involved in some way or another in the services, whether that be government, non-government, or retired. There are a few retirees as well. So it was very interesting to hear, like, when you speak to them about what was going on at the time, there was the Jobiaka-Peterson era and there was a lot of of conservative kind of ideology in politics then. There was a lot of justification for ignoring the social justice issues Uh, and there was a lot of agenda in, in terms of the development, the involvement of uh, property developers in politics would have been a whole nother research project on mm. its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Artificially, in, like holding on to properties and not developing them to artificially inflate value or yes. um, artificially. Uh, control, supply, that kind of thing. So there were so many threads that came out of this. Um, So interesting. Yeah. Really um, sort of highlights or outlines um, kind of the the push towards neoliberalism yeah. and the push towards where, you know, it's it's not just capitalism mm. because the government's involved yeah. and it's affecting the human services sector mm. and the ways that neoliberalism is about, and I've got some information here, mm. so if, if you think of the key assumptions of neoliberalism and being about bolstering the economic market, um, and that being prioritised over community, over mm. everything else, mm. and then also people being expected to be self-responsible and so mm. not looking at the impacts of those things on people who are disadvantaged and those people who are disadvantaged blaming themselves, mm. feeling like, well, they have a choice and if they work harder, they will be able to meet the expectations and standards of an inflated market, mm. which is not possible Absolutely. if you're in that situation. 
situation. No, so, and they're yeah. not even thinking of it in those terms. No. You know, the government was never that upfront with that was what their agenda was, never has been upfront with what their agenda has yeah. been in terms of yeah, property in particular. And I actually interviewed an old city planner or a retired city planner, I should say, who brought up an interesting ideology behind uh, a lot of the the people that he was trying to campaign against or trying to work with. And he called it the Protestant ethic of, Mm -hmm. and it's the deserving and undeserving, that God will reward those who he deems worthy and punish those who are unworthy, which he called a very convenient justification for those growing fat off of exploiting those that they, you know, and anyone else who was kind of caught in the crossfire there was not someone that they needed to be concerned about anyway. So it was just a very convenient kind of ideology to hide behind while justifying absolutely this kind of rampant exploitation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, like, we talk about the Protestant religion, but mm. it became more than just something for people to believe in as part of their own ideology it became an ideology for the whole community and for the whole structure and a tool a tool of controlling um, that narrative yeah 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 thank you what else (laughs) about your research tell us more well one very interesting thing as well that very much influenced um the attitudes around boarding houses in particular was deinstitutionalization. Mm-hmm. So in the 60s there was again probably like a strong kind of religious idea that well so first of all deinstitutionalization was overall a good thing. It took people out of institutions and out yep. of the abusive situations that were happening in institutions. What sort of institutions are you talking about? Like um, um, mental health? Yes, and yeah. disability? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So anyone who was deemed unfit to live in society, yep. families who weren't resourced or equipped to be able to support loved ones. Mm. And there was very little understanding, obviously, back then of how to support someone, especially with mental illness and even severe physical disabilities and things like that. So... Mm. There was a lot of support from families to pull people out of these places, but there was also a a mixed response with some people who were afraid of what would happen if they did come out of these places, Mm. what would happen to them in society. Mm. But the attitude that prevailed was that, you know, the the good Christian communities would wrap around these people and they would bring them in and they would look after them. And and I'm sure that that was probably the intention of a lot of people in the community. But it's not what happened. Mm. And so we got things like what we have today with like group homes and things like that that have just become mini institutions and people are still just as isolated from society as they would have been in these places um, or just as vulnerable maybe there was a all of a sudden a lot of people who had never really been hadn't been integrated into society all of a sudden just left so the major criticism with deinstitutionalization was that there were no resources put into it so there was no plan Mm -hmm. of what to do with people once these places shut down it kind of reminds me of when um the detention center in nauru Mm -hmm. fell apart Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean uh, that came through the exposure of, um, like, the security company that was part of it, mm. and then that meant that people didn't want to have their shares in that security company, and then so that all fell over, and then they they sort of shut down 
the Nauru Detention Centre, but mm. the people that were detained were left to try and figure it out themselves and mm. they're on this island in Nauru, mm. um, disenfranchised. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's what it kind of... Re- I can relate to that in that way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So. And you can you can see how that's a, that is a failing of neoliberalism mm. because it doesn't allow for it doesn't give space for complexity and yeah. it doesn't it isn't able to extend past baseline profit, yeah. you know, profit motives and yeah. yeah, and it doesn't value anything other than mm. profit. So some of the stuff that Shane was saying in the previous interview uh, Mm. around that is that it's profits over social justice, what's prioritised is outputs and outcomes over humanity and people's lived experience. Mm. He talked about it being like a numbers game, Mm. like it was about having people shift through, like bringing people in and then pushing people out so that more people could use the service so the numbers are higher, so you get more funding because Mm. funding is competitive. Like I'm talking about government funding for support for people, Mm. like the people that were um, like the people that you were talking about who were in in the boarding houses, is that right? Yeah, so a lot of them ended up in boarding houses, yes. Yeah. And the managerial goals around that, so you become like a business. Yeah. And it becomes about budgets. Yeah. It becomes about meeting targets and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. And boarding houses in particular, um, so residents of boarding houses are classified as tertiary homeless. Mm-hmm. And that just means that while they have a roof over their head, it is incredibly insecure. So yeah. there's a lot of rules around living in a boarding house. And if you break those rules, there is discriminatory legislation that okay. allows people to be evicted without notice. The rules have changed slightly over the years that they yeah. are able to recover their belongings. Yep. Yeah. But a person can be forced to move out of their home within 24 hours by the police still to this day it's pretty devastating isn't it yeah if you're deemed to have disturbed the peace okay of another resident yeah so you could imagine you know there's favoritism that goes on in these places there's cultural discrimination yeah oh absolutely and that's probably the basis for it because there were probably a lot of indigenous people early on who lived in these homes as well and so a way of getting rid of them a way of moving out the unseemly characters you know people coming out of prison assumedly unseemingly yeah absolutely absolutely (laughs) allegedly yeah Um, yeah (laughs) and and um, people coming out of prison, that's often where they would go. People yeah. coming out of hospital, that would yeah. just get put in a cab and mm. sent to well, West End Community House. People would just show up there with nowhere to live. Yeah. And they would, um, one of the ladies that I spoke to who still works, she's a community development officer for Brisbane City Council yeah. now, but she was one of the first housing uh, workers, a resident. I can't remember the title of it now, but it was one of the first housing workers. And they were basically sprung up out of emergency funding when they realized what Expo 88 was doing yeah. to the community, to the vulnerable community. And these workers uh, would take a slab of beer up to one that she talked about in particular was an old Greek fellow that yeah. used to sit outside and he would just chew raw garlic and smoke cigarettes all the time. Yeah. She'd take a six-pack of beer and be like, can you take this guy without a bond, you know? And, and he wow. would, yeah, yeah, and that was yeah. all kind of an agreement and a handshake. But yeah. then it's managerialism now. There is no way that those kinds of arrangements could ever could survive. Made. Yeah, because we don't exchange through community mm. gifts anymore. No, yeah. absolutely. Mm. And we, yeah, we don't give people 
people to well, benefit the doubt in those kinds. Yeah, but yeah. it's a risk. Yeah. And because of that personal responsibility, if something happens, you can mm-hmm. expect no support from, yes. you know, anything. Absolutely. Because we do, do live in that risk management society, don't mm-hmm. we, where yeah. Yeah, everything is based on assumption of what's risky. Yeah. Really interesting stuff. There was something that our team, when we had our conversation, like our pre-conversation about this, and it was the concept of conditionality um, and it's what you were speaking about there where there are all these conditions and things like that I just mm. wanted to read a little bit yes. of what that means yeah, yeah. and so it's um, it just says here the Australian homelessness support system is characterized by conditionality according to the progress towards the privilege of long-term stable housing so if if the, if people want to be secure in their housing or they want to continue to stay in the boarding house houses, for example, then people are subjected to particular meeting particular conditions, such as abstaining from drugs and alcohol use, engagement with case management or psychiatric services, demonstrating a capacity to be able to live independently and things like that. And so all these conditions actually happen, which are conditions that if you have privilege, you don't have those conditions on you. So if you have your own home, you can can drink whenever you want, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You can go home and have a glass of wine. Yeah. Um, But if you're in these, in in boarding houses, there's there's different rules and it's it's kind of a a form of uh, infantilizing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. definitely. And punishing as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Really punitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so many, so many layers to that, isn't there? I don't even know where to start with that one, really. And so the approach assumes people experiencing homelessness should be striving for self-improvement, which is a neoliberal concept or a, a sort of a classic liberal concept of um, those values of being self-reliant, self-responsible, mm. all of those kinds of things. Shane outlines uh, in the Part A episode how can this actually be possible when your everyday life is spent on survival and accessing a number of um, sort of side load services like so the service provision even if people were conditioned to do it sort of siloed services so you would have to do a lot of work it'd be like a full-time job just to keep on um, maintaining Mm. the conditions that Mm. you're supposed to do the housing first approach is an example he gives argues rather for providing housing first as a human right and supporting individuals to sustain that through a holistic plan where that person determines what their needs are rather than us providing the conditions. Mm. And so as social work and human service workers, it's really important and, and future practitioners, students who are future practitioners, important to really think about and consider the ways that um, we could be part of that force for social control mm. or we could part be part of the change mm. so that we don't do that to people. And so we're, we're shifting those neoliberal rules mm. around conditioning and providing something that is is more collaborative creates that collaborative alliance Mm. creates a more critical pedagogy where we see the wisdom in the shared knowledge that comes from everyone yeah not just from the worker as the expert for example yeah absolutely Yeah. yeah 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 So what was the outcome of your research? Mm, The million-dollar question. (laughs) I 
never fully finished it and I never quite figured out how I felt about it all. Okay. And I think that was because I I felt like, you know, I've mentioned this to you before, I was quite mm. surprised at the kind of, um, I don't know if pity is the right word, maybe compassion mm. that I felt for these largely male group of people that have been failed by the patriarchy mm-hmm. you know they are yes. the losers of of that system because they weren't able to pull themselves up by the bootstraps they weren't able to make themselves successful by the means of what it means to be a masculine man in society and yeah. instead have found themselves with the scraps and scrapping with each other and being treated like they're unwelcome in a community that they may have grown up in their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And back when boarding houses were kind of conceptualized, it was after World War II, a large number of families were either losing their wealth, like the old wealth through the depression and stuff like that. And they had big old homes that either family had moved on or they'd been lost in the war. And so they opened them up to workers. Mm -hmm. And it was a blue-collar, largely a blue-collar occupants, you know, who were coming through and working and, you know, coming in for a season while particular shipments were coming in maybe. Yeah, there's some really beautiful stuff written about, you know, the different colourful characters like the Irish and the German and, you know, and the different kind of groups that would come through at different times. And some of them never left. And as industries went out and were you know, um, outsourced to different areas, to cheaper places, um, eventually overseas, a lot of those largely men found themselves without a means, without an understanding of how they can operate in the world. And so, you know, it's kind of like they are a bit of a victim of their circumstance, even though you would never say that to their face. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, just... Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so are they the people that are mostly occupants of these boarding houses? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And also probably a lot of the reason why there's not a lot of will to do anything for them or about them. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So they're left to their own devices. Yeah. And um, the support is not provided Mm. um, because of those conditional understanding. Yeah, that's one part of it. And then um, because a lot of these places were old, they were privately run, they, over the years, they became quite run down, quite decrepit. There was a lot of unsafe building structures. There was a few fires where people lost their lives and that kind of created that knee-jerk reaction from government where they brought in building standards and fire safety standards. Okay. And around the 80s as well, there was some funding that was brought in, part of that emergency funding package that was brought in to provide boarding house owners with upgrades. But if you're looking at a 200-year-old property, upgrades aren't going to cut it because they're narrow. There's narrow stairwells. There's, you know, not enough entrances and exits. There's, And you can't do anything with those buildings because they're heritage. So double-edged swords. And there's also, you you are obligated to register if you have five unrelated house unrelated adults in one household as a boarding house but Mm. there is no oversight Mm. to that so people had to basically owners had to volunteer that information so there's a lot of people that are able to run these places however they see fit 
Mm. And for a long time, they so were, there's a lot of exploitation. A lot I of imagine. exploitation. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They were they were like known for money because there's funds. no regulation. Yeah, uh, there is the expectation that change happens, mm. but the lack of regulation around those things, I imagine, it means that the owners of those buildings can kind of let them go. Yeah, as much as they. Yeah, because this would be the step can. before sleeping rough. Yes, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And the owners would know that. And I'm not saying all of them. Yeah, there's definitely there was definitely a lot of ones that did do the wrong thing and still probably do, but yeah. So really interesting stuff, Lauren. And I think it's really prominent for where we are at the moment. Like I know you mentioned in relation to these predominantly being men and I imagine single men. Mm. And we I know that Shane was talking about kind of the the ways that homelessness can be gendered in different ways. Yes. And so boarding houses may be more a not desired option, but mm. an, an option for men whereas women it might be domestic and family violence um, refuges that Mm. are more likely because of the, he calls it the plague of domestic violence uh, or the plague of homelessness because of domestic and family violence and Mm. stuff like that. And and also women in homelessness, and he talks about homelessness not being a homogenous thing Mm. and so that it looks different. It's not just the sleeping rough that we see the vision of, the Mm. stereotype of, and, and things like that. It's a lot of different things. And so for women to sleep rough would be really not that it would not be dangerous for men, but women are more likely not to sleep rough, but that doesn't mean that they're not homeless. homeless. Absolutely. Um, at, yes. the, at the same similar levels to, to what men are as well. And yeah. not that it's a competition in any way, but just no. that it's gendered differently. It shows itself differently. Yeah. That's right. But it's part of that same problem because, yes, as we know, women are over 65 are the fastest growing yeah. population of homeless. And so, yeah, I think it's a That's it's right. a symptom of a broader issue yeah. around equality. And some of the things I really liked about what Shane was saying is he was talking about his pedagogy being around using critical theory, using mm. anti-oppressive approaches to practice. But mm. um, what really stood out to me was the activist ped- pedagogy that he was talking about. And so yes. he he was talking about the political activism and, mm. like, the personal being political and, mm. and how recognising that that's about power, yes. you know, and it's about how personal situations are not just from that person making a bad choice, Mm. there's a whole structure behind that. And I think you really explain that well in your story about that. And so the personal has structural and systemic issues that come from those ideas of Mm. from neoliberalism and that that, um, emphasis on profits and things like that. But he talks about political activism. He talks about resisting labels Mm. and resisting and rejecting those assumptions that we have about people who are poor. Absolutely. He says that we should be rejecting the demonising of poor and Mm. stuff like that. This research completely changed my views on that for sure. I I see people completely differently now and I was really able to unpack some of that learned fear that uh, yeah. you know was sort of I guess just absorbed through the that social messaging around you know that deserving and undeserving that somehow someone's done something that they might be a dangerous person if they're sleeping rough yeah now it's like oh they're a victim of this circumstance yeah you know absolutely just a and a victim manifestation of, of it yeah mm-hmm. a victim of the changing society and, mm-hmm. and oh, I fear for 
these situations that we're in at the moment where the housing crisis is at such a stage where it's hard to find the hope Mm. in it. And Mm. so it was really good to hear the things that Shane was speaking about in relation to the ways that we all can be part of change and and Mm. some of the sort of constructions of power that he said and he's he's talking about power um, and the power that we have as social workers. Mm. He's also talking about the power that we need to resist and and the power that we need to bolster, we need to use our power in ways that bolster people's emancipation. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And so, and and I, I know we're running out of time. We're, we're actually out of time. But I, just a couple of things that I wanted to bring to this so that we do have a, a bit of hope because yes. what Shane was saying firstly to get to here is that in his 30 years of experience, he's noticed different things, how politics actually and politicians in in power actually change the ways that people are provided for. There was a quote that he said. Oh, he was talking about a young person that he worked with and um, this person was living on the street and getting beaten and had his had his stuff stolen um, and, and that person was saying, and he, he called it advice from this person, which I thought was a really beautiful way to recognise that shared knowledge that comes from the service users. And he said, what person makes a choice to be homeless? Mm. And nobody would make the choice to be homeless. Correct. But he really talks about the ways that we as social work practitioners and uh, human service practitioners need to dance with people in power. Mm. Uh, He talks about asking critical questions, taking action, rejecting and resisting those stereotypes and collective peer support for longevity, keeping us in that. So his quote was, uh, we pick ourselves up every day and we keep going because we need to continue Mm. to fight that good fight because there hasn't been any increases in funding for housing and homelessness in the last 10 years. So the last one was Kevin Rudd Mm. and the funding from the white paper that was provided. And so there's been nothing since then. Mm. Shane's ideas, to me, recognise something we call educated hope. And that's how I kind of bring it into that critical and creative pedagogy, where he's talking about the ideas of how we as practitioners or future practitioners can be involved not only in the critique, and so this is this comes from Giraud, so the the idea of educated hope, uh, being involved in critique, but the creation of conceptual space to imagine alternative futures, and that might lead to social transformation. So educated hope contests the assumption that existing social structures cannot be challenged, and enables students and practitioners to envision alternative ways of living and organising society. Mm. So at the moment, for anybody who's in the housing housing and homelessness industry, I can imagine the despair that they're actually feeling Mm. at the moment. So I'm hoping that these kind of ideas, that having educated hope and continuing to counter the hegemony, Mm. which is sort of the overarching power from those in positions of power and positions of government that are making decisions for the whole of society and impacting on those who are most disadvantaged can actually change. Yeah. 
So were there any final comments that mm-hmm. you wanted to make before we wrap up? I don't think so. I think that's that was, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I guess the only thing that kind of popped into my head then was about it would be very interesting to hear it indigenous perspective yes in this as well because obviously there was a long-standing presence of indigenous communities in brisbane so it would be very interesting to hear their experience because they might be the only ones who have a history and a culture of not living in a home so you know that's absolutely mm. and i also wonder uh about the uh, perspectives of the queer community as well so mm. especially people who are non-binary and trans who if you think about where do they go when when they're homeless yes. um, when homelessness services are often gendered yes yeah yes. so mm. so really interesting ideas yes Thank you, Lauren. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, And, yeah, I've really appreciated your time and your knowledge and sharing it with us today at the podcast. This Um, is great. It's a great idea. Wonderful. Mm. Thank you to our listeners and bye for now. If you'd like to keep up with any of our socials and to continue listening to future episodes, please follow us on Instagram. That's Critical Conversations, the number four SW.